Hello again, everybody. Welcome to episode two of Political Beats, where we talk with people reporting on, working in, commenting on the world of politics, not about anything political at all, but simply about the music and bands they are passionate about. I'm Scott Bertram, your host, along with Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you doing? I am doing fantastic, Scott, and it's great to be back, and it's great to be back with our our next guest, who In- is a great get indeed and is going to be talking to us about, I would argue, the preeminent, or at least number two on that list, modern jam band. Uh, remind you first, this is a presentation of National Review. You can subscribe to our feed for new episodes through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And as Jeff mentioned, our guest today, he is a national political reporter for the Washington Post, political analyst for NBC News and MSNBC, moderator for Washington Week on PBS. You find him on Twitter at Costa Reports. Robert Costa is with us today. Robert, how are you doing? Great to be with you. Appreciate you making some time for us. Before we get to your band, which uh, Jeff alluded to, we give you a chance to introduce yourself a bit. What's your beat? What's your job? I kind of went over your job, but how did you get where you are today, Bob? Well, I actually used to work for National Review. I uh, went to Notre Dame and Cambridge for grad school and then joined National Review, and I eventually became, after four and a half years there, the Washington editor running the Washington Bureau down on Capitol Hill, managing a team of reporters. And then in 2013, I left National Review to join the Washington Post. I've been at the Washington Post ever since January of 2014. I covered national politics, presidential campaigns, the White House, Congress, And in my spare time, I have uh, time to go on TV to talk about politics, uh, working for NBC and MSNBC as a political analyst. And then every Friday night, live at 8 o'clock, I go over to Northern Virginia and tape Washington Week, which is a real honor to do. Uh, The late Gwen Eiffel hosted it for 17 years. She was a friend. Uh, I have the honor of being her successor. And that show's been on for 50 years, since 1967. So uh, balancing all of those activities uh, as we cover this chaotic moment in politics. (laughs) And you still have time for a deep, deep passion for music. And I emailed you, and I wasn't sure which band you were going to pick, because you you, you love a lot of different bands out there. And you came back with uh, with a three-word answer for me, and that was uh, a band that... It's the only group to have six consecutive studio albums debut in the top spot of the Billboard charts. They've sold more than 50 million records worldwide. Some radio hits early on in their career... They have played every summer for like 23, 24 years. They've been out and about. It's Dave Matthews Band. And uh, we want to start by uh, letting Robert Costa tell us a bit about why he chose Dave Matthews Band to discuss here on Political Beats. Well, you're right. I'm a big aficionado of jam bands and rock bands. I actually started my journalism career at age 16 as a freelancer for the Bucks County Courier Times, a regional newspaper outside of Philadelphia. I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and I got my start covering concerts. I used to go down to Camden, New Jersey, or downtown Philadelphia and cover concerts after a day of high school at Pensbury High in Bucks County. And I, I wrote tons of articles, interviewed different people. And one of the people I interviewed back in high school was Boyd Tinsley, the violinist for Dave Matthews' band, met Dave Matthews a couple times, and just covered a lot of Dave Matthews' shows. And Dave Matthews, to me, was really my first big love as a jam band, a music experience, going to different concerts. That led me to really dive into the jam band scene in different ways, following Humphreys McGee and Fish, and, and, and turning to classic rock and the Allman Brothers, 
and that sort of thing. Uh, but Dave Matthews Band was kind of my entry at age 15, 16 to the world of live summer concerts, rock reviews, and that sort of thing. And I've always had a soft spot for them. And I, could, and I just, when, I, when you ask me the question of who to pick out of all the bands I like, I just saw Dave Matthews play with Tim Reynolds. Tim Reynolds, side note, I brought to Notre Dame several times to play when I was at Notre Dame. But uh, I saw them play a show this summer in 2017 at the um, uh, Merriweather Post Pavilion. They played an acoustic show, and I was just reminded, for all the slack that Dave Matthews Band gets, and they get some criticism for being milk toast or vanilla, they have some some songs I think really hold up or are very well done. And and Matthews has, I, I think, a really uh, different kind of quality of playing guitar. He uses almost this, this percussive way of hitting the strings, and, and, his, and his vocals are unique kind of because of that South African voice he has from his time there. So, Jeff, go ahead and get in here. Well, I guess the way I came into Dave Matthews' band was, was very lateral. I, I am uh, the world's biggest deadhead, um, which people who know me are oftentimes extremely shocked to discover. Being a fairly buttoned-down uh, conservative guy, I um, uh, blow their minds when I talk about the countless, countless live bootlegs I have <laughs> of The Grateful Dead dating from the years 1966 to about 1977 to the point where I can literally, and this is not a joke, I can tell you every single show they played on a tape that circulates between the years, say, 1966 and 1968 off of the top of my head without referring to like you know a resource online. I won't do that because it's really boring and kind of alienating. And save it for the but, dead episode. Oh, well, exactly. <laughs> but uh, what got me, in, when I grew up, of course, in high school, Dave Matthews was everywhere. And in college, you know, it started with uh, Under the Table and Dreaming. And, of course, Ants Marching was your, your MTV radio music soundtrack. And then you go into college and then crash hits. And then before these crowded streets, which I, I actually hope we get to because that's an album I'm, I'm pretty fascinated by. Um, but what really got me into them actually took a long time, and that was in law school. Uh, my my really good friend in law school, one of my closest friends there, he's my roommate. This guy named Will William Rothwell. And I want to give him a shout out here because I know for a fact he will be listening to this podcast when it drops. It's probably the biggest Dave Matthews bit band fan I have ever encountered. I mean, he's the guy who like collects the bootlegs, who has the really, really considered opinions on like, you know, whether Butch was good in the band or whether he was bad in the band. He's the kind of guy who will tell you that, you know, the Steve Lilly White sessions are almost overrated <laughs> because they are so often spoken about as the holy grail, the lost grail of the Dave Matthews studio era. This is a guy who really pushed them on me, and, and most importantly, he pushed their live music on me. And that, to me, is what I was very surprised to discover because he, up until that point, I hadn't realized it. I had always thought of Dave Matthews as sort of like, oh, here's a radio single that I've listened to. Here's this nice, you know, oh, my brother bought Crash, and I listened to that. You know, it's a studio band. Um, 
I believe it or not, had not realized that their real life blood, the real way they existed as a group, was through live concerts. And as somebody who at that point was already a deadhead and a huge fan of live music in general, I immediately connected to them. I immediately started going back and looking through their concert discography, picking out shows, finding out they had never literally once played a single set list twice, uh, never repeated themselves how they evolved over time in terms of their sound, people in and out of the band. And that sound that they had, uh, they really did develop and still have, honestly, to this day, their own unique sound. You know, I, and I get get what Robert was saying here about, like, oh, is it too milk toast? I don't think it is. I think it is a very kind of a light and an airy sound, mm-hmm. very much based, I think, on Carter Beaufort's drums. Uh, but I found it to be pretty darn appealing. Um, it's another one of those things where you start off with the sort of hipster snobbish dismissal and then the more you drill down the more you pay attention and the more you realize that no 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 you were wrong you were really really wrong about this group and so it's you know when we you know when you told me that 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 bob was gonna be on the show i actually had a lot of fun going back talking with my friend and sort of reacquainting myself with a lot of this old music and kind of remembering how right he was and how great a band they really are Political Beats, Scott Bertram, he's Jeff Blair, Robert Costa, our guest this week at Costa Reports is where to find him on Twitter, National Political Reporter for The Washington Post. This is a presentation of National Review. We talk about Dave Matthews' band. Uh, Bob, success from day one, really, for, for the band, right? I mean, they, they put out an independent release, which then got kind of re-released uh, as Under the Table and Dreaming, and singles uh, hit the radio. What Would You Say, Satellite, Ants Marching was a big one, too, but they found an audience uh, from the start. Yes and no. I've been down to uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, where they got their start, and, you know, they really kind of start first started playing concerts around uh, 1991, and Matthews was a bartender at this place called Miller's. It's still there. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Charlottesville having all the, the, the tumult and the tragic death uh, in recent weeks, um, but I think Charlottesville is, is kind of a a town that really captured why they were able to catch on. But it took them a while because, yes, they released uh, Remember Two Things as an independent album, and it came out in 1993 as uh, on their own label. Um, but you see that Dave Matthews' band really played around Roanoke and Richmond and Northern Virginia and Arlington and, and Maryland and, and, and the southern part of Pennsylvania all throughout really 92 and 93, resisting getting signed uh, by a record, major label because they wanted to build their own fan base. And you see that kind of ethic coming out of the, the working band in Charlottesville, a lot of professional musicians in this band. Matthews was the songwriter who was the bartender at Miller's, and it all just kind of clicked, but they didn't jump into... Uh, what's interesting about uh, the, the Grateful Dead reference, Jeff, is that you're so right. I mean, the Grateful Dead and the Dave Matthews Band often get lumped together. There are a lot of differences. I mean, the, the Dead's really more of a jam band in the traditional sense of actually jamming songs. Matthews jams songs, but it's not really in the same electric guitar, see where the sonic zones you can find. But uh, the, great, the, the Grateful Dead, another deadhead was uh, Corin Capshaw, a business music impresario in Charlottesville. He became the manager of the Dave Matthews Band early on, and he's still their manager. Capshaw is down in Crozet, Virginia. And he instilled in that band early on, you're going to tour and tour and tour. You're going to let people record your concerts. And so he had that dead approach 
to the band early on, and I think that really helped establish it at that time in America with these college students who were trading tapes, who were yeah. finding out through word of mouth about these songs. And the Dave Matthews Band has spoken about this, and uh, about how they'd go to concerts in 92 and 93 before they became big, and people already knew their songs, and it was that kind of grassroots appeal that really caught the band on before they signed with RCA Records. I mean, they had a really taper-friendly policy. This is, I do taping. I'm, I'm a big tape trader myself um, for all sorts of bands. But, you know, DMB was actually pretty famous for, like, I think all the way up. And after they even broke big, like up until 96, 97, they, they would literally let people who wanted to tape their shows plug into the soundboard. Hmm. So they wouldn't have to just, you know, throw up these mics, you know, on stands in the middle of a crowd of unruly people. They can just plug in and get the direct source because they understood uh, that the way you really grow virally a band, especially one that relies so heavily on, as as Bob pointed out, as touring in, in word of mouth, is by letting the tapes get made and letting them circulate, letting them get out there. And I think they only stopped doing that uh, when two things happened. One, when I think bootleggers started selling a lot of these tapes and they got really ticked off about that. But also when they started introducing basically multi-track recordings, I think from 1996 onward, every single show Dave Matthews has ever played has been recorded on a multi-track tape, which is uh, more than actually you can say for the Grateful Dead. Uh, the Grateful Dead use soundboard recordings, but that's why they have this voluminous back catalog of live releases, which is where the real fans always insist, you know, you know forget about the studio albums, dive into live tracks, stuff like that, which maybe we'll get to in a little bit. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, you mentioned an album that I wanted to get to and make sure we, we had time to explore a bit because it's actually, uh, my favorite Dave Matthews band album is Before These Crowded Streets and Jeff mentioned he liked it and we'll find out what Bob thinks of it. But to me, that's it's weird because that's almost the least, it's the hardest one to get into, I think, from uh, from the songs you hear. But And every song's six, seven, eight minutes long on Before These Crowded Streets, but my favorite Dave Matthews Band tracks are on that album. Uh, I, I think Rapunzel's a great tune. Uh, Stay, Wasting Time might be my favorite Dave Matthews Band song of everything that they've put out. And they kind of extended, I mean, Bob mentioned they're not really the jam band in terms of, you know, finding where, you know, just kind of going up and finding where to go sonically. But, you know, they jam a bit on that album. They get long. Um, it's tough to access at times, but I think putting a little bit of effort into it is quite rewarding. That's my favorite album that Dave Matthews Band has put out. Oh, I think it's a, it's a phenomenal album, but you're so right that it, it's kind of a thicket to walk into as a listener. I mean, if you listen to Before These Crowded Streets, at least for me, you have to be kind of on a longer car drive or you have to be alone. <laughs> it's not a, an album that just kind of digests itself quickly. I mean, It's like 75 minutes long. Yeah. It's like a really long record. <laughs> it's like the average song on that album is like six or seven minutes, if not eight minutes. I mean, it's, it's wild. But I mean, I, I think what I like about that album's sound is that though it doesn't sound like the band live per se, it has kind of the quirks and the different kinds of musical flourishes that make the band such a great live band. And the, the band, it's like a jungle of sound. I mean, I mean, you think of a song like Stay. I mean, one of the, the core appeals of Stay is it has such a phenomenal just little guitar riff, and that riff is so memorable at mm -hmm. the beginning of the song. But it just kind of explodes into this, uh, this colorful 
really beautiful song, rousing song uh, by the end of it. And I think one of the one of my favorite songs live is on this album, "Don't Drink the Water." Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, just kind of this brooding. And I love it's kind of the best. Matthew sometimes gets blatant in his later albums about politics, and but "Don't Drink the Water" I think has this message, obviously about the Native American community and about the the uh the expansion out west of the United States and the consequences of federal government doing different things but he does it in a way that's not right in your face uh but and it's a it's a it's a wonderful song uh, i think uh another song that i always enjoy live but i think i don't really listen to it on the studio ever is halloween i mean when you mm-hmm. hear that live that's such a one of the matthews rare songs where he really seems to rage and he actually has a curse in the song that you don't matthews almost never curses in his songs he curses in halloween and that's that's a powerful song and it's just the the, the thing about the the thing i think that holds before these crowded streets together is steve lillywhite the producer did such a good job of constructing it. Matthews had some phenomenal riffs. I mean, you think of the riff of Stay. You think of the riff right. of The Stone. Uh, and The Pig is such a, a song that... And these songs have been were cultivated over years. I mean, Pig used to be Don't Burn the Pig. It became Pig. You listen to all these recordings live from Matthews, you see the evolution of so many of these different songs. And so it's a fully developed, fully produced album. You, you see kind of a, a, a progression from... Um... Under the Table and Dreaming, and then you have Crash. And those are songs that basically were built out of stuff that they had been playing forever. I mean, you know, you go back to uh, the first live album, you know, Remember Two Things, Trippin' Billy's, which ends up on Crash, had been being played since like 1992, 93 or something like that. So you have their, their sort of early pop songwriting, and you get these little hits. You get like Ants Marching, Satellite, get Crash Into Me, you get some other songs. But then the songwriting gets actually a little bit baroque on before these crowded streets in a really good way that actually to me it, it's disappointing what happens next which is kind of you know the famous the most famous you know incident or controversy in the whole Dave Matthews band history it's the Lily White sessions we'll get to it but the thing about before these crowded streets for me the song on that album is crush yeah that's I the one that, that I like the most and it's funny I was talking to my friend as I said my, my buddy will he said the ones that I would remove from the album are don't drink the water and stay and he, <laughs> and he says it's not because they're bad songs they're great songs but he says a it's too long you got to edit the darn thing and B they're, they're singles. They, they play in their own Dave Matthews lengthy, self-indulgent way, but they play as singles as opposed to the rest of that album, which has a much more kind of a crabbed feel. And that I, I find right. is what I actually find so intriguing about it. And then after these failed sessions for the next album, they sort of, you know, Dave Matthews goes away with a different producer and radically simplifies the sound. And they sort of to a lot of people's you know, point of view, sort of lose their way in the studio for the next several years. That's a, Just a real quick chime in on this. I think that's such a good, interesting, intriguing point I've never thought about. If you took Don't Drink the Water and Stay out of the album and you just had kind of Rapunzel and The Stone and Halloween and Crush and Dreaming Tree, Pig and, and Spoon, that would be a Baroque. And, and those songs are their own chestnuts whenever you hear them live and they have this kind of darker thickness to them that this this weightiness that matthews is really kind of fleshing out that that more baroque sensibility that he has and i think i think that's a that's a, a great point because stay is kind of this bright moment in the middle of the album that maybe even doesn't fit the theme um but yeah i think you're right that what happens i think to dave matthews band 
looking back, is they have the first two albums, Under the Table and Dreaming and Crash, are really oh, two of the same. They come out of the same songs, the same process from the early 90s, and the band just explodes in that 94, 95, 96, 97 period. And when they go into the studio in, in 97 and 98, before these credit streets comes out in April 98, he's turning to kind of a more mature part of his, his life, he, he, a more mature part of his songwriting, but then it just kind of, after they go on to the big stadium tours after that, 98, 99, 2000, but then it just never really meets that, I think, artistic level of having real depth. Not that the other albums aren't good, it's just that this was artistic in a way that a lot of albums since then have not been. Hey, and you know, before we before we move on to you know the Lily White era and all of you know those issues that afflicted the DMB afterwards, I gotta ask you: Are we being too dismissive of their early big hit albums? Are we being too dismissive of Under the Table and Dreaming and Crash? It, I feel like we ought to give them their due. They are the albums that made the Dave Matthews Band the sort of massive commercial college rock national success that they are. And uh, it almost feels like we're being a little bit too much of a, a group of snooty hipsters. Yeah, I don't think we should be dismissive of that. <laughs> hey, we're not being dismissive. I mean, those. I think you're, I think you're bringing up a, a point in the Dave Matthews Band community so often before these crowded streets gets elevated, and it's it's rightly elevated. But I've been in so many discussions with fellow Dave Matthews Band fans where before these crowded streets is almost constantly referenced as the artistic peak. And even if that's true, I think your point is right. It's like you could, the, the the fun of the earlier albums, I mean, the, the lightness, but really cool, cool construction of songs like What Would You Say and uh, Ants Marching are, you know, they're, they're phenomenal songs. And then Warehouse and on the first album's great. And, I mean, these are songs that still get everybody going. Crash, I mean, Crash really elevated, I think, beyond these, before these crowded streets. And you see in Crash touches of the longer songs that would, that would come. I mean, A Proudest Monkey's nine minutes in the studio. And that's, you know, kind of, uh, it shows you what's coming with before these crowded streets. To Say Goodbye is a long song. 41's almost seven minutes long. Yeah, 41, by the way, is actually, you know, we'll get to this at the end, but that's my nominee for the single best song that Dave Matthews Band ever did, period. Why it's is that? 41. Why? Uh, why? Well, first of all, because you know the, the the sort of the lyrical backstory to it is is pretty fascinating. It was, of course, written you know talking about uh, you know the DMB's manager uh, and their 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 current manager was it Corin is his name. I I can't remember the the actual name, but before him they had another guy who they you know they got Ryan rid of. There you go, artistic differences, right? And then the lawsuits inevitably followed thereon. And the song is written about, you know, his feelings of sort of, you know, sort of sadness and kind of, you know, misery and despair about that betrayal. Uh, but not only that, it's the musical backing that is the most, to my mind, interesting and kind of points the way to the best of what you would see on Before These Crowded Streets. It's a really catchy kind of a hook where he goes up and he hits that high note and then the band comes in and you got the boy little violin riff that keeps going and the polyrhythms underneath and it is, to my mind, not only the best song on Crash, not the pop, not the pop single hits, not the one that gets played, but it's a live favorite 
for a very good reason. And I actually have made it a point to go out and collect as many live versions <laughs> of that song as I can find because I really like it every time they play it. And they can extend it to like incredible lengths. I think there's like a version out there that's 30 minutes long, which is probably a bit too much. But it's just uh, – it has a desperation to it on not only the lyrics but the musical side of it that, that speaks to me more than anything else that they've done. This is Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. I'm Scott Bertram. He's Jeff Blair. Our guests, Robert Costa, at Costa Reports on Twitter, Washington Post, NBC News, MSNBC, Washington Week on PBS as well. We're talking about Dave Matthews' band on this edition of Political Beats. Uh, before we get to the Lily White sessions and, and, and the 2000, I want to talk a little bit about the, the live band and a live music that Dave Matthews band puts out. Uh, I know Jeff wants to talk about Boy Tinsley. Before we get to, to that, I wanted to, to, to talk a little bit about Tim Reynolds. And, you know, Reynolds was like in Matthews orbit and he's now a part of the band actually when they when they go out and tour. The uh the Live at Luther College live album that was released in ninety nine, I think is is outstanding. It's just the two of them. It's just Dave Matthews and it's just Tim Reynolds. Uh, stripping those songs back to, to just two guitars and, and, and leaving aside the rest, I think, speaks to the power of them as written. And I think in that setting, too, it might be it's one of the best, I think, vocal performances that I, I've heard Dave Matthews give uh, through that whole performance. It's just it's 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 cleaner. It's crisper. It's more direct. And I love those songs in that setting. Bob, if you want to talk a bit about that album in particular or what Tim Reynolds has meant to Dave Matthews through his career. Well, one of the it's the strange thing that everyone thinks of me as a political reporter, but I've interviewed and profiled Tim Reynolds no, numerous times, and really have gotten to know him over the years. Um, still keep in touch with actually his manager, Fluffy uh, Setner, and uh, Lisa Farber, his publicist. They're great. They're, more Lisa, I keep in touch with. She's great. She lives in. She, she's from the D.C. area. Um, Tim is really a character, and I, I've enjoyed working with him as a journalist over the years because. He's this guy who's small in stature, but really can pack a punch on a guitar and has such dexterity on the fretboard. And But he has a, a, a personality that's just so different. I think that's part of why Matthews and him get along so well. He was playing at Miller's back in the late 80s and the early 90s, and he's older than Matthews. And he had such talent, and, and he, was, he, he has abilities to hear what Matthews is doing and to fill in gaps, to think about different flourishes on the guitar, different sounds. Uh, Reynolds really loves using the pedals to come up with different effects. And I think he really, even though he's one person, he, he almost makes a whole band effect whenever he plays with Matthews. He never does vocals with Matthews, which is usually two guitars. You'll have some, another guy doing vocals with mm -hmm. you background. Reynolds never sings, um, but he has, he, he has a strumming ability that fits in with Matthew's style, and I think more important, this doesn't get enough attention, is that Matthews, I think, is very sensitive to his celebrity, and you know, he likes that. With Reynolds, it's he's, it's always they're normal guys from Charlottesville. They get back to that, even though Matthews has become such a star. When he's with Reynolds, Reynolds 
treats Matthews just like the same guy he was back in the early 90s. And, 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 Matt, and Reynolds has really been, if you talk to him, he, he really likes to have his own career. He's basically a member of the Dave Matthews band, but he likes to go out there and tour on his own and really be separate but equal to the other members of the band. And he floats in and out. He's not on every album. He's not on every tour. Um, but I think Matthews has come, as you should see in 2017, he keeps going back to that Dave and Tim model. And, and that Dave and Tim uh, album from 99, it was an album from uh, Luther College, a, a concert from Luther College in 96, that I think really helped the Dave Matthews band in, in a lot of unsaid ways because they were becoming this stadium band, bigger mm-hmm. songs, bigger albums. And it brought them back to this kind of intimacy and this college. I think the college high school audience in the 90s and early 2000s was so crucial, this idea that they were just kind of buskers singing these heartfelt songs with different allusions uh, to, the world, to the world or to world politics or to relationships. It just connected as a band that wasn't really corporate. It was almost like an independent band, and I think that really resonated, and in part because the Luther College album just exploded. I believe it went platinum over a million copies sold, uh, yet it just had this simplistic blue cover. It was almost like getting a bootleg, but it mm-hmm. had the vocal qualities and depth that, that established Matthews as someone who could hold a stadium, but also was great in a theater setting. I mean, it's not only that. I would argue that uh, Tim Reynolds basically, in a way, is the safety valve that prevented the band from breaking up. Um, you know, you know, after the Lily White sessions collapse, you know, and then you have the whole everyday busted stuff thing. Um, it seems pretty much like, you know, Matthews is kind of fed up with everything else in the band, band dynamics. It's really awful. He goes off and he does that solo album, Some Devil, which is, uh, I, I've mixed feelings about it. It's a bit overproduced for the studio tracks, but when they play that music live, it's really good. Um, but if he didn't have that, ultra other collaborator just to sort of go away and work with outside exclude to the exclusion of everything else all the politics of the inner band side who knows i mean band doesn't survive to 2005 in an alternate dimension could be i think it, it, your point is matthews does need this valve especially after the lily white to go off and do some devil but he never records a studio album with reynolds it's always recorded concerts uh, and tours, he loves doing the winter tours or the the, the spring tours with Reynolds. I, 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 the the Reynolds, Dave and Tim. I mean, you use that phrase with people; they just get it. It's these two guys, really, uh, and they're exploring the songs in different ways. I think that's why it has uh, power. I mean, they've been doing it for decades. But when you hear uh, "Don't Drink the Water" on before these crowded streets and then compare it to a Dave and Tim, they're totally different songs in some ways, but they're they're very similar. Don't miss your boat, it's leaving now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Unless you go, I will spread my wings. Yes, I will. I actually had a when I was in college to go on a very brief tangent. I in 2008, Barack Obama's running for president, then senator. I go to Indiana University. I was at Notre Dame, but I drove down to IU in Bloomington because Dave and Tim were going to play a concert there at the basketball arena. And because I was a school TV at Notre Dame regional media, I got on the media list. And so I'm in the IU basketball men's basketball locker room, the famous team IU 
uh, win all the national championships. And Dave and Tim are there, and I do an interview with Dave and Tim on camera, and they took the microphone out of my hands at one point and started interviewing each other. It was like this surreal moment. It got passed around a little bit on the Dave boards back then uh, online. Uh, admit it, early life highlight for you, Bob, right? hundred <laughs> percent. I'm not, not going to bounce around that, hundred percent. Uh, Political Beats is the uh, the podcast presentation of National Review. We're talking Dave Matthews Band with Robert Costa at Costa Reports is where to find him on Twitter. Um, just to give you a time check, we've got about 15 minutes to go. Squeeze some more stuff in. Uh, I know that, Jeff, you had some thoughts on uh, one particular member of the Dave Matthews Band as a live performer. I feel like I feel like a really, really mean person saying this, but I got a real bone to pick with Boyd Tinsley. All right, as a live performer, mind you. Listen, the violin in in the band, and in a band like this, an ensemble band that has, you know, not only a front line that includes violin, but also saxophone, you know, not afraid to incorporate non-standard rock instruments. That's great. That's fine. And in fact, in a support role, I think he does fine work. I really like his instrumental support for all of the songs that they do. But I got a real, real problem with him when they give him space to solo because I have to say he is one of the – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be charitable here because why be mean? He is one of the least compelling soloists I have ever heard in all of uh, jammed out live music. And he seems to go on forever playing the same sort of simple uh, melodic and rhythmic ideas. You know, basically, you know, you know, three-note ideas, triplets, um, no unified conceit or – uh, you know, concerted idea that brings the stuff together. And the one that bugs me the most is, I don't know if this is just a, a hearing issue. You know, it's obviously playing live music on stage is always a really difficult thing to do. But he has been painfully out of tune on so many otherwise great live performances to the point where their live releases of some of these shows have had to just either edit or like auto-tune him into the correct form. And uh, I don't know. I mean, hey, he's a founding member of the Dave Matthews Band, and I'm not. So it seems like it's a little bit picky of me to, 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 to focus on this. But for a guy who gets <laughs> as much space to solo as he does, I'm really disappointed that he doesn't seem to have very much to say. Well, I, I disagree with your assessment. I think, you look. All right, lay it on I think me. My, my answer to this is, is four words. Lie in our graves. I think if you listen to Tinsley's solos on Lion Our Graves, when he actually has space, he, he is, I think, phenomenal on Lion Our Graves. I actually don't think Tinsley often has that much space in a lot of songs to, to solo beyond a few notes. It's not like this is a violin-driven band. And I think the other thing that Tinsley's live performance, even if he's out of tune, which I don't think he is most of the time, I mean, I think the guy gets a bad rap, I, I, I think he is the consummate performer in the band besides Matthews. I mean, he understands how to keep a crowd going, how to, how to step up and really play into a note or play into a song. And uh, the Dave Matthews Band is made in a lot of ways because of the horns and the violin. Of course, Carter Brofer is the heart of the band, and, but I, I think Tinsley... Because, you're right, the violin just doesn't always maybe fit on every song, but I think he's, he's a strong player, he's a strong performer, and uh, I, I don't know, I, I think it, this is, I just disagree. I think he gets a lot of hate because people, I think, he just, they think the violin just doesn't fit or it's out of tune, but 
I think it fits. I mean, I actually think his support work. Yeah. What I mean, I'm, I'm very serious about that. The violin has its places in almost all of these songs, and he does a fine job with them. That it, it works. It, it feels organic. It doesn't feel like tacked on or fake or we're just trying to find something for you to do. It's just when he takes the front stage and solos, I start rolling my eyes. And then, again, perhaps I'm being too harsh. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll call that a draw. Uh, <laughs> and because uh, I want to make sure we talk, we've been mentioning the Lily White sessions, like the whole podcast, and we have to at least we've explain. been talking around the subject, right. yes. So this is after before these crowded streets, uh, entering two thousand or so, and working on a, on a follow up with Steve Lily White, who uh, produced tons of, of big hitters in, in his career and produced uh, Dave Matthews stuff uh, stuff up until this point, but their fourth studio album, and apparently what came out was a very uh, very dark. Uh, record, uh, dark lyrics, um, and it was all abandoned. Uh, the band's label objected, and they went their separate ways, in fact, and then somehow ended up writing with Glenn Ballard, who's uh, most responsible for Alanis Morissette and, and far more commercial, shimmying uh, kind of production uh, on on those albums. What resulted was the album called Every Day, which had a couple of, 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 of decent singles. I did it, and Every Day and The Space Between did pretty well in the charts. But it seems, in, in, in looking back, um, not just fans, but even those people involved with the album weren't that pleased with the final result. And then they go back and take a whole bunch of songs that were part of the Lily White sessions and kind of rework them for the next album, which was Busted Stuff in 2002. So it's, it's a tumultuous couple of years for the Dave Matthews band. And then the other, the final part of that is that this is like early in the internet era. All mm -hmm. right. So it's uh, 2000, 2001, the Napster era, the tape trading digital thing is just getting underway and what's most important is uh as every day is coming out every day is coming out maybe even a little bit before that those lily white sessions at least a rough cut of them mm -hmm. leak online so they end up getting circulated to the entire fan community and become this sort of like word of mouth secret handshake are you in the club do you understand that this is the real album dave <laughs> matthews should have made kind of a story for them and it's interesting because there are a lot of people who have some interesting contrarian hot takes on this, but I want to I know where Bob comes down on it first. I think the Lily White Sessions, oh, it, it's, 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 it's really a tragedy in a way. It's a, it's a shame. that the, I always think Lily White, his work with the band in the 90s, is, I mean, the, the first three albums are still my favorite albums. It's not just because it's the early material. I think Lily White understood the band's sound in a way that other producers just did not uh, i mean you think about songs in lily white jtr i mean the riff on that is phenomenal uh they have some, some a lot of songs that end up on busted stuff as you said i mean bartender but others that that don't like monkey man and i, I think sweet up and down i saw dave matthews play that with dave and friends his tour with trey anastasio around 2003 and that was such a great song and never really got fleshed out played out by the dave matthews band I just think I was so disappointed back in 2000 with uh, Ballard and Every Day because I used to watch these interviews with Matthews and he'd say this is like our greatest work ever. But I really feel like the band was sucked out of the Everyday Sessions. You, mm -hmm. you didn't hear it was really a Matthews solo album. In, in yeah, he, didn't he come into them and basically just say like, "Here are your parts. This is how you have to play them to the rest yeah, of the it band." Didn't have the, it didn't have the texture that I came to expect from a Dave Matthews album. I don't begrudge the band and Matthews for kind of just getting sick of the Lily White frame 
and to have all this kind of texture and different kinds of sounds and the eccentricity that came from all those three first three albums. But I really missed it in the clean sound of every day. And every, ever since then, each album's kind of had this cleaner sound that just doesn't make me want to pick it up all the time. I respect the songwriting, but it's just it doesn't have that kind of, as I said earlier, like walking into those earlier albums was like a thicket, a wonderful thicket of sound where you just don't get that on every day. Do you agree with the general fan community take that Busted Stuff is just a weaker version of those original Lily White songs? Yeah, the way Busted Stuff was produced by Matthew's close friend Steve Harris, and I just feel like they went back into the studio, they cleaned up the songs, and the, the, I mean, Gray Street sounds fine in studio. Where Are You Going? I thought was just it was a song that never really caught on with me. It's just a repetitive song. Yeah, it's a uh, mess. Yeah. I think, I, I, look, think I think Bartender was a gem, and I, that, that's on uh, Busted Stuff. But I, I don't come back to Busted Stuff. I like Busted Stuff when it came out, but it's just I knew what it could have been, and that kind of was disappointing. Political Beats, presentation of National Review. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. I'm Scott Bertram. He's Jeff Blair. Robert Costa is our guest, talking about Dave Matthews' band. Uh, we move uh, forward a little bit. And uh, we get to the, the death of Leroy Moore, which was 2008. A um, huge part of the band, huge part of the sound. Dave, or not Dave, Dave's not with us. Uh, Bob, he is with us. Did they do a decent job? Have they done a decent job of recovering from that loss? I, I think the, the, the real... It, Leroy Moore, I met him once. He had, he had kind of a very monk quality to him, and I mean that in a positive way. He was this like monk-like figure. He barely moved on stage, but he when he played, he played, and it was almost like a jazz musician coming in with this deep sound on the sax. It was like a it's almost like another bass guitar, and it had just this way of really lifting the music up and girding the music. I think bringing in Jeff Coffin uh, from Bella Flex Band, the Flectones, was mm-hmm. the best they could have done. I, I think, you know, I've seen Coffin in, in concert, and he's done a, a solid job. He's not showy. He's more of a background player, but he's very able in terms of his musical ability. But uh, I don't know. It's just you miss the spirit of Leroy Moore in the band uh, more than anything. And you think about the albums that came after it. I mean, Big Whiskey and the Grugux King, um, has some great songs, but the best song on it that really clicked with me was the first minute of the album. It's a song just called Grux, and it's a, a clip of Leroy Moore playing uh, by himself, and it just has this this boom quality to it that just grabs your throat. And the rest of the album's solid. I mean, it has decent songs like You and Me and Why I Am, but uh he he's missed he's missed especially in a hot summer night in a shed and and you were <laughs> just waiting for that kind of sound to pop in Now, my, my, my friend has a, 
mentioned him earlier. Will is the biggest DMB fan on the planet. He has a theory that uh, the, the entire story of the Dave Matthews Band is like a reverse Bildungsroman, which a Bildungsroman in the German sense is like a, a journey of a young man going on self-discovery and, <laughs> and achieving maturity, uh, and that Dave Matthews Bands was interrupted by the whole cesura of the Lily White sessions, where they were getting into this interesting dark kind of evolution. And then it collapsed, and then they went to that simple sound. And then that was what carried them through for the next several albums. But that they're finally getting back to it with both Grugrux and with, I mean, to date, it's, it's amazing that I'm saying to date the most recent album is Away From The World, uh, which is from 2012. I mean, it almost makes me think that I hear that they're apparently in the studio recording a new album. Um, but who knows when that might show up. They seem to have kind of slowly edged their way back towards a more elaborate form of songwriting um, even as they become more and more again in the tradition of say the Grateful Dead a purely live act that mm -hmm. doesn't have to rely upon studio albums to sort of you know have an excuse to go out and tour and push the product there at this point they don't have to have a reason to be out on the road they're the Dave Matthews band if you know what you want if you know Dave Matthews well you're gonna get what you like and uh, that's why they seem to have really slowed down the pace of production recently. But they're getting into something a little bit less sort of maybe because they don't have to worry about putting out pop hits anymore in the modern era. They're getting into something a little bit more uh, compositionally interesting. I think that's true live. Uh, I mean, yeah. you think about away from this world, away from the world. Uh, it, to me, it's almost like a this low-key album. Uh, I mean, the song, Mercy's a nice little song, Sweet's a nice little song. I know a lot of girls I've dated like the song Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Snow Outside, another nice little sweet song, the belly, belly full, belly nice. But there's no powerful anchor in these albums that you come back to and say, ah, that's on the, that's on the way from the world. And, 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 uh, Grugrup's got a, a lot of attention because of it. It's in memor memoriam to, to Roy. But, I mean, funny the way it is, solid, but not really a, a song that you you got to come back to as a huge thing. It's more of a, 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 a insightful song. Why I Am, Why I, Am, I think, is probably the best recent song from the last two albums, the most recent albums, live. Uh, and the rest of Squirm's fun. Seven, Dave likes playing live. Uh, but there's, I don't know, just, I, I, don't, I don't mean to knock the two albums, but I just don't come back to them for core songs, really. And I think you're right. They're, Matthews has been playing with Tim Moore on the road, and their live shows have been pretty solid in the last few years. I, I, I think it was a little... They had this acoustic electric tour in the last few years where they start off acoustic and then kind of play a shorter set electric. I was, I was mixed on that. I think when they would play a full show and go full into it, that's the best version of the Dave Matthews Band. But again, they're... They've been around for a while, and doing that probably takes a toll production-wise and on and on your energy. So they did kind of a more laid-back summer tour a couple of years ago. Though they they came back to more of a regular tour this time around. I mean, this kind of gets us into the question, which maybe you know, sort of the way we we take it in for a landing here about the question for a band that's so dependent upon their live music and their live performance. Well, first of all, the first question I'd ask you, Bob, is what do you think of them currently as a live act do you think that they still bring it the way they did back in the glory days say of like you know the crash era the before these crowded streets era or do you think there's been a perceptible drop off because you know for the dead 
being a, a great comparison. Year to year, I could tell you, there were years, bad years, and then after that, good years because of shifts in personnel, shifts in uh, repertoire, things like that. So do you think they're dropping off? And then the second question I'll ask you after you're done with that is what is your favorite live era of the Dave Matthews Band? So I think the question of drop-off is a fair one and valid one. Uh, I think they have, in a way, like a relationship stalled. I think they've stalled a bit. I don't think they're. I don't think the band's coming apart. I think the band's pretty tight when you hear them live. They're they're at the top of their game in terms of they're they're not dropping off in terms of skills, and and having the bigger band has been helpful to them in some respect. But yeah, I think taking the break like they're doing right now, the band just takes a break for a year. It's been I think the healthiest move possible for the band because there were times in fifteen fourteen, I just thought this is. They didn't seem to have the same joy on about on some of the the, the songs. Uh, it would just, especially the earlier songs, they would just kind of run through them, and they, they didn't, they wouldn't jam them out that much. And, and their ability was good, but yeah, I think it's healthy for them to take a break because I would love to see them come back and just get some more joy and more spirit in it. And that, it's not that they're not bringing the, the spirit when they're playing, but even Matthews playing with Tim Reynolds in summer of 2017, I could just sense they're just trying to get a little bit, get his hands back on some of these older songs, and can you find a way to appreciate them again? My favorite live era, probably around 2003, 2004, just because I'm biased. That's when I really started going to see him all the time. (laughs) You're right. You know, and that was... was Oh, my God, you're a busted stuff live era fan. No, no, but if you think about that that canned, uh, that... uh, the Central Park concert they did in '03. I mean, there were some strong performances back then. They were, yeah, were they playing a lot of everyday songs and busted this stuff? So I'm sure that wasn't my favorite stuff at all. But I was too young to see them back in the '90s. And uh, the band, I, and it doesn't have any real bearing on on the actual ability of the band itself to play those songs either. That's right. Exactly. You know, um, I I think you're right that that it, it's healthy for it, to take a break because it'll give them time, hopefully, to learn to miss one another. If you keep going on the treadmill, that's what happened to the dead. Uh, you know, they even tried to retire for uh, like a year in the mid '70s, and then they came back and they were hot for a while. But then the treadmill just never stopped after that. And just going into the '80s, you know, there are people who are fans of them. I, but it just familiarity breeds contempt. Taking time off, especially for a group that's so dependent on trying to come up with alchemy in a live context, to to, to solo and. To, to find that 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 magical moment in, in a live context where everybody is just playing at all five gears, you, you can't do that if it becomes an endless and relentless grind. So I think it is, as you said, a really good thing that they're just saying, eh, you know what, we're going to give it a break. We're going to come back maybe next year. We don't want to have to worry about having to come up with you know two-hour shows uh, every single night out on the road. It's uh, Political Beats, Scott Bertram, he's Jeff Blair, Robert Costa with us. We close this episode by asking uh, Bob first, which two Dave Matthews Band albums should people own? Give us five tracks as well, if you would, everyone should hear. Oh, man, the two albums I think you got to own. I really enjoy um, uh, Dave Matthews did a solo concert at Sweetbriar College, which is where his wife, Ashley, went to college. And the song Crash was about watching and hanging out with Ashley there. 
uh, they, they just released this album, Dave Matthews Solo at Sweetbriar College. It really is Matthews at some of his vocal best. This is recorded, I think, around 95 or 96, uh, and right before Crash came out. And it's just a, it's a phenomenal album, and it's just like an album you never heard about, uh, but it's out there. Uh, it's available. Uh, so I think that to really capture who Matthews is, Sweetbriar College, was, it's a phenomenal two-track, two two-CD two album. Um, I think that, I think you got to just... I know this is cliche, but you got to start with Under the Table and Dreaming. I mean, to me, if you can start with Ants Marching, that's the entry drug if you want to get into Dave Matthews' band, and then you can explore some of the other tracks there. And you listen all the way to the end, to number 34, and you think to yourself, man, this is a, you know, this is a band that has real, real uh, talent. I think my favorite song, well, some of my favorite songs, Real quick would be Warehouse. I love seeing Warehouse live. I'm a big fan of um, Proudest Monkey. But now I am the proudest monkey you ever seen. Monkey see, monkey do, yeah. I really like Pig. Um, I like to see ants, and uh, I'm a big fan of Don't Drink the Water. Jeff? <clears throat> All right. Well, if I'm just going to start off by naming the albums, the obvious studio album answer has to be, I think, Crash and Before These Crowded Streets. Uh, but if I want to become a real kind of, you know, uh, hipster jerk, I would say that it's <laughs> Live Tracks Volume 3. Yes, from their. Dicks Picks Bootleg Series, which comes from, I believe, August 27th, 2000. It's in, like, Connecticut somewhere. It You can probably download it digitally if you want. It's a fantastic album, uh, a show where they play a lot of those songs, and they play, in fact, some of the songs that I like the most from the top five list that I'm about to say. And I'll say, for first of all, we're doing this chronologically. Yes, Ants Marching. I, I hate to say it because it's like, oh, yeah, the song that everyone knows. But come on, it's a good song. It's a good song. You love the violin riff, and you know it. And if you say you don't, you're probably lying to yourself, and you should go talk to your priest about that. <laughs> 41 is my number two because that, I think, is the best song that they have ever done. That's on Crash. That is a magnificent song, probably one of the more emotionally, in terms of just of the pure music, emotionally compelling things that they have ever written. Uh, Rapunzel and Crush, those are my three and four. Those are both from Before These Crowded Streets. Fantastic songs, very long, dark, crabbed, very bizarre, but very compelling. And then finally, I would say a very poppy song. It's Gray Street. They tried to work it up for the Lily White Sessions. They never quite got it done. They finally released it on Busted Stuff. It's a fantastic song. It's a pop song. There is nothing wrong with that. It is a really, really pretty song. Every time it comes on, you will feel a little bit better about your life. I recommend it highly. And I will uh, tell you quickly, my albums are the same as uh, Jeff, I think, Crash, and uh, Before These Crowded Streets are, are the two to grab uh, songs. Uh, too much. Your brain does weird things. My brain always takes me from that big, giant hook and too much straight into Crazy in Love from Beyonce. There's like a little similarity there, I think. Uh, so grab too much. Uh, that's, pr that's pretty weird, Scott. I know, but it, your brain does strange things. Uh, I think Stay and Crush from Before These Crowded Streets are, are 
probably my two favorite Dave Matthews Band tracks. Uh, so grab those. Uh, Trip and Billy's from the Live at Luther College disc is excellent. And uh, more recent vintage, uh, Dive In from Grugrux is also a good Dave Matthews Band track. Uh, there we go. Finishing it up. Uh, Robert Costa at Costa Reports, national political reporter with Washington Post and NBC News and MSNBC and Washington Week on PBS and huge Dave Matthews Band fan. Uh, thank you so much for the time. Thank you. That'll do it for Political Beats. Uh, check us out on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Tune in, subscribe to our feed for brand new episodes. Jeff, we'll talk again next time. Yes, and we will see you next week where we may be getting a little bit modern. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, <laughs> this has been Political Beats, a presentation of National Review.